Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. You know, I recently had a conversation with my mom who was telling me about someone that we've known for many years who came to faith in Christ a few years ago, and she has seen such a dramatic change in this person's life. I mean, someone who was considered successful, but who was also very angry, self-focused, demanding person, and that had changed to become someone who was more giving, thoughtful, and even caring. So she shared that in seeing this change that had happened in this person, and it said that it convinced her even more that there must really be something to this Christianity thing. And although thrilled to hear about the transformation in this person, I had to ask my mom, like, well, mom, that's cool that you see that change in them, but have you not seen any personal transformation in my life? Um, No reflection of the fruit of the Spirit, and I know that patience would not be high on that list, but I thought at least maybe a little bit of joy, some peace, maybe a little bit of love. Um, that God has been reflecting some of the work that he's been doing in my life. And her response to me was, no. (laughs) I'm like, seriously, Jesus is the most important thing in my life, and you're not seeing a whole lot of fruit? But when I asked her permission if if I could share this story, she says she now clarifies it and says, well, my life wasn't just dramatically changed as that other person was. I don't know. I guess we'll go with that story. (laughs) Um, But her point about transformation highlights a heavy concern that I've heard from other people who have either been uninterested in Christian faith or have let their faith go because they just haven't seen Christians whose lives showed true Christian transformation. I've heard them say that they've hung around people who they say are Christian, but their lives resemble more of the world. They show little resemblance of Jesus's character that they know of. Um, They've said that they hear some good words, but when there's no action to back up those stated truths, it causes them to disengage. Because in their minds, if Christianity has made so little of a difference in your life as a Christian, what difference could Christianity mean in mine? Because I can just, just do as well on my own. And I would imagine that all of us have struggled with some of those similar conflicts. Um, We may not have walked away from our faith, but we may have been disillusioned by a leader or another or a friend because they say one thing and live another. Or we take a good hard look at our own lives and we see some pretty spotty reflections of personal change. Because we get discouraged at the slowness of how sometimes change takes place and it's just slower than we want. Um, And it's easy to lose hope in change because we've seen others struggle with it and not change and and not be able to do so. And, And again, we see that in ourselves. So we can get tempted to give up and think, well, what's the use? And so that's the question, you know, that we want to know, that we struggle with. Like, how do we make change happen in a real and lasting way? And for this reason, I think it's some of the, one of the reasons why we love transformation stories. We love to see that dramatic change is possible. And that's one reason why um, we like movies like Hoosiers. I know it's an old one, but does anybody remember that one? Hoosiers, yeah. We're an underdog, small-town Indiana basketball team with a new coach with a checkered past. It piques our interest, right? Because we think, well, how good could this team really be? Can this coach change? And then there's this town drunk who becomes an assistant coach, and you think, can he stay sober? Every character in the movie is broken, and yet the movie unfolds that we see powerful change happening. It affirms in us that, yeah, change is possible. 
I mean, it's one of the reasons I love Lord of the Rings. You know, a main character, Aragorn, is the heir to the throne, but he hides his identity pretending he's just a ranger because he's not a king because he's just not ready. And this trilogy tells of Aragorn's transformation to become a king, and he grows into this position. And we see that this journey of transformation is not just vital for him, but for him to change, it changes the kingdoms of man. So whether you've seen any of those movies or not, um, it resonates with this question, why is transformation so difficult? And that question is problematic sometimes for us as Christians because we so clearly see the good news of the gospel is that, what does it say in Corinthians? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But boy, it can take some, it just feels like a long time sometimes to see that new come. Because when we don't see that change that we long to see, we question the possibility of real and lasting transformation. So how we change is the topic that we're going to explore today through the life of Jacob. Last week, we left off with Abraham and Isaac, and today we're going to focus on Isaac's son, Jacob, and how he was changed and came to take his place in living out God's promise to be the father of nations. You know, as we've been working through our way through Genesis, we continually see God using so many flawed, insecure people to accomplish really powerful things. And Jacob is definitely one of those flawed people. Because I remember as a kid, um, when we read stories of Jacob, I was never impressed. In fact, I disliked Jacob. Because he was full of conflict, and he was a liar, and he was a coward, and he was selfish. And I just wondered, why would the Israelites ever get to the point where they would proudly say his name? This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, Jacob did not seem like a Hall of Famer to me, you know? But last fall, I was wanting to delve more into the story of Jacob, especially the aspect of him when he was wrestling with God. Um, but I didn't have time. So, gosh, this has been a great week for me because I've gotten to pour into the story. And I just I hope that it helps you, too. So first, let's get a little bit of background in the story. In Genesis 25, we see Isaac marries Rebecca, and they, um, and they struggle with infertility for about 20 years. And when she becomes pregnant, this is what ha- they say in, in Genesis 25. The children struggled together within her, and she said, Well, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And Rebecca heard God correctly. Esau, the first twin, came out with the second one holding Esau's heel. His parents called him Jacob which means grasper, and which can also mean liar or deceiver. Now, it appears that the family went on not paying attention to that prophetic word that Rebecca had, that the older was going to serve the younger. They followed the culture's protocol that the oldest son got the birthright, which meant up to two-thirds of his father's wealth. And in this family, the birthright also meant that he received all the promises made to his grandfather Abraham that that this family would bear the Messiah. But for some reason, God had wanted to flip that rule, and it wanted the blessing to come through Jacob. But what we see in this family is a house that's divided, because Isaac loved Esau, and Rachel loved Jacob. So when the boys were teens, Esau had been out hunting, and he came in really hungry, and Jacob had just finished cooking a pot of stew. So Esau asked for some. Jacob, looking for a way to get the upper hand, he says, I'll trade you something for it. And Esau said, well, like what? And Jacob, like a really great negotiator, he starts with something really high, thinking maybe I'm not going to get that. So Jacob says, well, how about your birthright? 
So Esau, he's being, he's a teen, impulsive, short-term gratification. He's thinking, what good is it going to do to have my birthright if I'm dead, right? So just give me the stew, you can have it. And as some say, um, Esau sold his soul for a jelly roll, you know, anyway. Uh, a few years pass by, and their dad, Isaac, is blind, and he's about to die. So Isaac, who probably doesn't know anything about the deal that they had between the brothers, and he prefers Esau to Jacob anyway, and he wants to formally confer the blessing onto Esau. So Isaac asks Esau, go out, hunt some venison, prepare it, and bring it back to me, and I'll confer the blessing. Rebecca overhears that and talks with Jacob, saying, well, here's our chance. So they get some goats for the food, and they strap the goat hair to Jacob's arms and to his neck, and they send Jacob back in to feed his dad to receive the blessing. Now, Isaac, remember, he's blind. He's, he's confused, though. He feels the goat hair on his son's arms, but the voice is different. So he asks Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob lies, saying, my name is Esau. So somehow they pull off this first recorded identity theft. And they knew they were going to be found out, right? But I don't know. So Rebecca knew God's plans, but she had encouraged her son to get a promise from God and did it in her own manipulative way rather than letting God hap- make it happen. And, you know, and I've thought about that. You know, if I felt like I had heard from God and Ross was not following along, I, I, it's a 50-50 chance whether I would have done the same thing, you know? I don't know. That saddens me. But when Esau gets home, he finds out the blessing has already been bestowed. And for some reason, I don't know why, but they can't renege on a formal bestowal. So the blessing and inheritance now belongs to Jacob. And Esau is livid. But he's going to wait a few days until Isaac dies, and then he's going to kill his brother. His mom hears of that, and she sends Jacob away, thinking that it's only for a short time, but it ends up being over 20 years. So what we see is that Jacob now is essentially running for his life as a fugitive. He's unwanted by anyone other than his mom and completely unsure of his future. He has no resources. He's sleeping out in the open at night for days. He's exhausted, and he finally succumbs to weariness, and he sleeps, and he has a dream from God. And in this dream, he sees a stairway that is coming from heaven and it touches earth where messengers or angels are ascending and descending. And above this stairway, God stands and speaks. And he says in Genesis 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What a promise that he gets when he's in so much sin. Then Jacob awoke from his dream and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Isn't it just amazing to see how God seeks us where we are, whether it's a wilderness, the dead of night, when we're in compromise or rebellion. Because Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place, but I didn't know it. How often do we not know when God is there? So Jacob then pours down oil, he consecrates this place, and he calls it Bethel, which means the house of God, and he dedicates himself to God. And it says in verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. 
and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. So what we see here is a beginning of a journey that is transforming Jacob from a broken, flawed, manipulative, conniving, self-focused man because he just met the God of his father and his grandfather. He's beginning a relationship that is so much more personal so that it's not just the God of Abraham and Isaac. He says, you shall be my God, Jacob, my God. And then Jacob follows it up with a commitment, with action. And he says, I'm going to give 10% of whatever you give me, God. So Jacob's story continues, and he goes to the land of his mother where he finds her brother Laban. He immediately sees that and falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And, I mean, this reunion starts so sunny. I mean, I remember as a kid, I'm like, oh, yes, this is like Cinderella finds her prince. But then we know it just takes a different turn, right? Jacob, the deceiver, receives the same kind of deceptive treatment that he sowed with his brother, but by the hands of his uncle. And so Jacob's love for Rachel was so great, he was happy to serve for seven years to win her hand in marriage. But Laban tricked Jacob. After the wedding and all those years of work, Jacob discovered Laban had switched out Rachel for the older sister Leah. And that is definitely not a Cinderella moment for anybody, right? Jacob soon then marries Rachel because he agrees to work for another seven years. But rejection and betrayal, it was a constant issue in this family. Leah was the one that was able to have children, and Rachel did not for a long time. So in order to make the family dynamics even better, for some reason they felt like they would add their maidservants into the family equation so these women could have more children with Jacob. I don't understand that, but okay. And eventually there's these 12 sons that are going to become the tribes that would eventually establish an entire nation from whom Jesus would eventually come from. During this time that um, Jacob is with it, we see God keeping his promise with Jacob, and he is prospering. Laban knows that he benefits greatly from Jacob, yet Laban continues to cheat him. So we see Jacob trying to address Laban's conniving, selfish ways with fairness. In addition, though, we also see Jacob's brother-in-laws. They become more jealous and resentful of Jacob's wealth and favor because Jacob is now a very wealthy man. He has a large family. So when Rachel finally has her first child, Jacob decides it is now time to leave, it is now time to receive the fullness of the promise that God had, and the thing that he hadn't had was the land. So he makes plans to finally return home to Canaan. Laban refuses to give permission for Jacob to leave with his family. So while Laban is on a trip, Jacob convinces his wives to leave. And when Laban returns and sees that they're gone, he sets out in hot pursuit of Jacob, and he is going to forcefully bring them back. But God intervenes. He warns Laban in a dream to not harm or bring Jacob back. Laban meets Jacob and they make a very testy and wary covenant to not harm each other. So right now, we see Jacob is in between a rock and a hard place, right? He knows he cannot go back to Laban. And it was good. I mean, he made money and it was a good place, but he can't go back to that life anymore. But to go forward to the land God has promised him, this means that he's going to have to see Esau again. And he has dreaded this moment for years. Because isn't it often easier to make changes when we live so far away and we move? You know, those experiences that we've had when we've been dishonest or our behaviors, our mistakes have caused other people things. I mean, it just sort of stays with us, but we can somehow avoid it a little bit more when we're away. But it looms in the background of our lives. And in order for fuller transformation to take place in Jacob, to see the fullness of God's promise in his life, he has to return home. He has to go back to the place where his deceptions began to make amends in order to move forward in God's promises. 
So Jacob hears that his brother is on the way to meet him, and along with him are 400 men. And so he, so Jacob puts all of his family on one side of the river, and then Jacob goes alone, not having any idea what he's going to do. See, he, before, um, he has sent, before Esau's arrival, he has sent gift after gift, trying to, hoping to soften his brother's heart. But the million dollar question is what? Will Esau come in peace to reconcile? Or is he going to come in war to get revenge? So tomorrow is the day of crisis. It's the climax of Jacob's life, and he is at death's door. This is the dark night of Jacob's soul. He has no more plots. There are no more plans, no more bag of tricks, no more strategy. There's no one else to come and to help him out. Nothing to bribe or barter. He is stripped of all his old ways of coping and combating. He is at the end of himself. And it's at this very moment in Genesis 32 that a mysterious man comes to him in a climactic scene, and he wrestles with Jacob until the break of day. Now, I found a picture of two of our staff, Jeremy and Greg. They were doing a reenactment of this scene, you know. I'm not sure which one's Jeremy. I think the one getting pounded, maybe. I don't know. Here we go. Um, I don't think that's probably how the wrestling match looked like. Um, but anyway, but from Scripture, we, there is no introduction of, to this mysterious man. He comes out of nowhere, and he battles with Jacob. And we know that from what Jacob says later, that this is no ordinary man, but a manifestation of God himself. So what is Jacob wrestling for? Like a father-son wrestling, this is a battle between Jacob and God. It's a back and forth. Now, my brother was a wrestler, and a three-minute match was very difficult. Can you imagine wrestling for an entire night? But this wrestling match shows us how God helps bring deep transformation to Jacob's life. In verse 25, in the midst of it, God reaches out and touches and dislocates Jacob's hip socket. Now, how painful would that be? I mean, dislocating your finger is bad enough, but a hip, this is the largest part of your joint in your body. This mysterious man just touches it with his finger, and it's knocked out. I just think it's interesting that one of the strongest parts of the human body, and Jacob is wounded there, reemphasizing again that in his strength now he's wounded. So in verse 26, the mysterious man said, "Um, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is a real grasper. And then he said, and the man said to him, well, what is your name? And Jacob said, and he said, Jacob. Now in this culture, a name contains something of the character of the person. What's in the name can mean, who are you? So this mysterious guy is not asking Jacob's name because he doesn't know it, but he wants Jacob to admit it. Because my name is Jacob. I'm a grasper. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. In Jeremiah 17:9, when Jeremiah writes one of the most famous descriptions of the human heart, he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The Hebrew word for deceitful comes from the same root word as Jacob, and it leads some scholars to say it can be translated, the heart is deceitful or the heart is Jacob. So remember, when Jacob had first taken that meat to his dad and Isaac asked him, what is your name? Jacob lied, right, and said, my name is Esau. Now we see Jacob telling the truth. He goes, my name is Jacob. I am a deceiver. I've tried all my life to obtain these blessings for myself by my own manipulative means, and I am repenting. He goes, then, he goes on to say, then he said, um, the mysterious man said, you, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. With Jacob's confession, God is giving Jacob a new identity. You know, your identity is not your past, it's not your shame, 
And it is now Israel, which means literally you have prevailed with God. You have struggled with both God and men and have won. This name speaks of God's blessings on Jacob's life, far beyond anything that Jacob had ever sought for himself, far beyond anything he could fathom the blessing was going to go. And this blessing was just not for him. It was for the whole world. Now, remember, Israel is a name that's used 2,431 times in the Bible. It's in 34 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, 13 of the 27 of the New Testament books. It is clearly an important name, and God gives it to Jacob. But I learned something I didn't know by listening to some Jewish authorities on what the name Israel means. So Israel is a combination of the Hebrew words for wrestle and God, meaning, again, God contends or one who struggles with God. And it's the first time it's used, right? It's here with Jacob's wrestling match. And this name gets right to the heart of a relationship with God and his people. And the Jewish scholars were saying it's not a religion that's based on rules or blind obedience. It's a, it's a religion that's based on confrontation, struggle, questions, and dialogue. It is a religion based on relationship, and it's personal. That is so powerful. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to say the name Israel the same again because God is not opposed to us wrestling with questions. He's actually inviting it, encouraging it. And I also love how this wrestling is a process of pressing into God. I don't think that we encourage wrestling enough today in our own selves and for our kids. I mean, we like things to be quickly resolved. I don't want you to feel anxiety, right? But what we see in Jacob's wrestling is that when we go through conflict and difficult things, we press in. I like Martin Luther's question that he landed on when he goes through during difficult times. And he says, Will we press through what looks like hostility to see the rushing river of God's goodness that runs underneath? I was reminded of how this struggle looks like in our lives when we were talking to our youngest son who this last week who's at college at ORU in Tulsa. And he was talking about Bill Johnson, who's a pastor of the Bethel Church where the music and a lot of stuff comes from. And he shared, he was at their um, chapel services and and was talking. And Bill Johnson, he was talking about how it can be really easy to give praise when things are going your way. But to give an offering of praise when you are in those wrestling matches, when things don't look good or things are not turning out the way that you expected. He talked about how our offerings of praise are supposed to cost us something. In those moments when things are rough or challenging or difficult, those are the vital moments in which we praise God. And one of the vital moments in his life was when his dad passed away. Now, his dad was an incredible man of God, and he was the greatest encouragement of Bill's life. Um, He was diagnosed and died um, within six months of that diagnosis of a disease that they had seen as a church that Jesus healed over and over again when they would pray over them. But it didn't work for his dad. And as a family, they surrounded their dad for days before he passed, and they would just take that time, and they were sharing stories and giving praises. But when his dad breathed his last breath, Bill talked about his confusion, his pain, his disappointment and guilt, because he was like, is there something that I could have or should have done? And he had all of those thoughts and emotions going on inside, and then as well as his family having them. But he said, yet we stood around his bed, and we determined to give God an offering, something that cost us. Because in heaven, um, I'm not going to feel discouraged, he said. I'm not going to feel confused, and I'm not going to feel regret. So I'm going to put all of those feelings close to my heart, and I'm going to give them to God as a costly gift of worship. 
He didn't deny the situation or the pain, but he pressed in to find the goodness of God in this situation, not for it. I mean, and that's a huge piece of transformation to look for the goodness of God. I mean, that's where, and in his experience of doing ministry, what he has seen, the people that are the most stable emotionally are those that have learned to search for that goodness of God. The song that we just sang earlier, Raise a Hallelujah, that song was out of, came out of Bill's church. And it was when they were praying and contending for the life of a little boy. And they were believing that God was going to heal him in the midst of all the difficulty and it didn't look like it was happening. But it's interesting, in this case, this little boy was healed miraculously. After receiving a new name, Jacob now asks in verse 29 of chapter 32, um, please tell me your name. But he was asking the mysterious man. Um, but he said, the, the mysterious man said, well, why is it that you ask my name? I mean, I'm like, well, of course he's going to ask your name. He's going to want to tell this major story, you know, and want to tell people who you were. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether the man told Jacob his name or not, but we do get from the next phrase something very extremely important. And there he blessed him. And in verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And this is why most theologians believe that the man was some kind of manifestation of God. And it also shows that there is some danger. There's a vulnerability that comes when we seek God to become personally transformed. In the vineyard, we say the kind of faith that has real meaning, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, right? Jacob is a transformed man after this experience. And it's not because God told Jacob that everything was going to be okay with Esau. He didn't know. God simply told him, go, I'm going to be with you. There is no promise that Jacob will live through that encounter with Esau. And in fact, God made him limp. So now it's even more impossible for Jacob to run away. What God assured him with is that he is going to have his personal presence. And Jacob deepened his relationship with God. He didn't, he didn't know if there was a resolution to the problem, but there was a resolution in his relationship with God. Because for a long time, Jacob thought that Esau was a problem. But Esau was never the problem. Jacob's real problem was that he was trying to get things done in his own calculating and manipulative way rather than trusting God was going to follow through on his promises. And by changing Jacob's identity, Jacob's entire situation was changed. And I think that that limp was a powerful reminder for Jacob that God is not going to change. Because with every step he took, he was reminded of God's promise that he's never, ever going to leave him. And assuring Jacob that all of God's promises were going to come to be. So with this new name and this new identity, Jacob goes out to meet Esau. And along the way, God had somehow changed Esau's heart. Because when Esau sees Jacob, he runs to him. And then they stand there hugging and and weeping for a long time. Jacob's life reveals how gracious and patient God is. For years... Jacob schemed to manipulate people and outcomes. He lied to the people closest to him to get what he wanted. He didn't seem to care who he trampled on or hurt along the way. But through it all, God kept showing kindness and compassion to Jacob. And he gave him a chance and a second chances. And God patiently did the work of transforming Jacob. Genesis 32 should encourage us because it reveals that no matter how messed up our lives are, no matter how many bad decisions we've ever made, And no matter how much we have wrecked the relationships around us, if we encounter the living God, we can be given a new life. 
The New Testament teaches us that we can encounter God through his son, Jesus, and then in Christ we bear his name. Our identity is no longer wrapped up in our sin. It is wrapped up in him because we are a fully loved child of God. We see this blessing is not also just for Jacob. You know, his heart has changed. He doesn't want that blessing just for him. He wants it for others. Um, about a week ago, Orson Bean, he was an actor and a director um, for 50-plus years. He passed away. And I recognized him from game shows, and um, I knew he had been on Broadway as well. Very successful for a long time. But I wanted to read a little bit about his life, and he talked about his journey with God. He wrote he, he struggled with happiness much of his life, and he described it was like a long wrestling match inside his mind and his soul. He eventually found happiness in a relationship with God. So he said, quote, for most of my life, I didn't believe in God. Well, who had time? I was too busy with things of the world, getting ahead, getting laid, becoming famous. I didn't want to be famous for its own sake. I wanted to be famous so as to be happy. He said that fame, he, it did make him happy for a while. He says, it got me laid and made me money and it, got, and it was fun. And I wanted more, so I graduated to drug and booze. And they worked too for a while, for quite a long while, he said. But then one day it just stopped working. And, and became nothing. And he enrolled in a 12-step program, and he met a tough-looking member named Bobby. And this guy was one tough bugger, full of scars and tattoos. And he had done hard time in the penitentiary several times. The last time that he went to jail, he was arrested by a SWAT team with helicopters on the roof of a building. So while he was in jail, though, Bobby started going to meetings and then helping other cons stay out of trouble. And then when he was released early, he started sponsoring a number of young guys. My babies, he would call them. So one day, Orson Bean was about to ask Bobby for some advice, and an LAPD motorcycle cop sped by on his big black Harley, and he jammed on the brakes, and he jumped off the bike and ran over to Bobby. Bean said, we all thought, like, oh, my gosh, what has he done now? They're coming to get him. But instead of arresting him, the cop gave Bobby a huge hug, jumped back on the Harley, and blasted off. One of my babies, he said, and he started off down the street. And Bean ran after him. He says, well, what can I do to change? Bobby's response was, get down on your knees and thank God every morning and then do it again at night. Bean said, well, I don't, I don't even think I believe in God. Bobby said, it doesn't matter, just do it. Well, why do I have to get down on my knees? Bobby said he likes it. And that's all he said. So he said, Bobby just stared and looked at Orson for a while and then, and I said, okay, and then I thanked him, and he took off. And so, and though he felt like a fool, that very night, Orson Bean got down on his knees, and he said, if there is anybody up there, thank you for the day. And he said, that night I slept like a log. And in the morning, I got down on my knees again, and I said, if there is anybody there, thank you for that my night's sleep. And little by little, it stopped feeling foolish. He says, I began to feel like my prayers were being heard, that something or someone loved me. Later, Bean read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he came to the conclusion that that someone was Jesus, the Son of God. And he concluded that my life has gotten better and better. And it was that little prayer that was, that's what did it for me. So one of the things I love about that story is that the personal transformation for Bean that he describes as this wrestling match, that it wasn't as dramatic as Jacob's, right? It was a simple, consistent getting on your knees and praying, and God becomes real. So as we close today, I just want to review some of the key ways that we saw that Jacob made change. God invites us to process into a wrestling match of asking difficult questions with the goal of helping us more fully resolve our identity in God. 
Because when we get identity with him, it comes with a sense of worth and value, significance and purpose. Second, transformation requires making amends. Are there some people in your life where you've just moved on and avoided dealing with? You've experienced some of the goodness of God, but you know that if you really want to move forward, if you really want to walk in the fullness of the promises of God, you need to leave your convenient current situation and you have to go back and make amends. And third, when life is difficult, press in. Through the difficulty, look for that rushing river of God's goodness that consistently runs underneath. And in those times, give an offering of worship that costs you something. One thing that I consistently see that stands out to me when I get to to come along people in counseling and they're trying to make changes in their lives, it feels so holy to me. Their life and their issues, it may not feel holy to them, but it is. Because they are in the middle of a wrestling match. And whether they realize it or not, it's a wrestling match with God. And in this process, they get to experience a major role of the Holy Spirit. And that role is to bring conviction, to convict. In the Greek, the word to convict means to expose. And it doesn't mean to humiliate. But that kind of exposure, that can feel vulnerable. But the Holy Spirit exposes us in order to bring wholeness. And even though I've watched over and over again in my life and how others, God is working with others, um, that kind of vulnerability, I resist. It's like I, I still want to do things on my own. But I love the fact how God says, um, I'm going to be patient with you because he does not heal us without our participation. He doesn't force it. He has way too much respect for us. He works at our speed. And as we see in Jacob, God is going to go to your wilderness, to your prison with you. Maybe Jacob's wilderness could have been less than 20 plus years if he had maybe participated more. I don't know. God is not going to rip out your survival skills. Like for Jacob, it was deception, avoidance. I can do this on my own. Um, There may be some natural consequences to keeping some of those survival skills. But God's plan is to love you to a place where you're willing to let those survival skills go, even though those skills may have kept you alive as a child. Why? Because like we saw with Jacob's skills of conniving and avoiding, these survival skills were impediments to a real and authentic relationship. And it keeps us from experiencing those fullness of God's promises. So as you continue to read on in Genesis, you're going to see um, what this wrestling did. And it was that Jacob, he worked and he wrestled, and it wasn't just for him. His family then could lean on him in ways when they went through hard times because they knew that he knew God and that God listened to him. And so it brings that question, like, if we don't make changes, where does that leave the people in our lives? Where does that leave your kids, your friends, to our community? Because the changes that Jacob made to follow God, we are still reaping the positive benefits of those today. So let's pray. Well, God, we just want to thank you that you are, you just are so faithful to love us where we are. And that you're always seeing more for us. And you have more promises for us. And Lord, we pray for a work of your Holy Spirit to come into our lives. And we open our hearts to more of what you want to do. Lord, I pray for fullness to come into each person's life. To have a a wholeness that we just didn't even fathom or realize that we could have. So we bless the work of your Holy Spirit. And we worship you. You are an incredibly 
amazing God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.